How you doing? You seem groggy today, I have to admit it. In case you don't know, there is coffee in the lobby. I will not be offended if sometime during the first five minutes or so you pop out and get a drink. It's good to see everyone. Um, I do say this from time to time, but I mean it and it does happen. If we haven't met and you would like to get to know me or our church a little bit better or talk about anything at all, really, and you'd like to meet for coffee, my email is in your bulletin. Shoot me an email and sometime in the next week or two, we'll set up a time where we can meet up and chat and uh, get to know each other a little bit better. I would personally love that. That would be fun. Um, So I'm going to start with something that may be a little obvious. Not everyone has the same experience exactly, but I'm sure that uh, we have moments at least that reflect that high school can be rough, right? A few oh yeahs. I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I didn't enjoy high school. I actually had a good experience, but it had its moments at least. And for some of us, it had a lot of moments. I think it's a period of life where we're trying to figure out who we are, you know, and we think we have to solve it then. And we're trying to figure out who we are, where we fit in the world. And for me, that meant trying on all sorts of different ways to define myself, to tell the world who I was. So uh, one of the things I loved to do, which I realize now, probably didn't at the time, uh, was to know music that nobody else knew. Can anyone relate to this? So I had an advantage. My brother was in college at the time, and he had a radio show where he would play all this underground industrial type of music, and nobody in Mount Vernon, Illinois, had ever heard any of it. So almost every day of the week, I wore a different oversized, super baggy concert t-shirt from bands from Chicago that no one in Southern Illinois would have ever heard of. I loved it. I felt cool. And at one point, my friend Marcy said, Brad, your identity is too wrapped up in the music you listen to. And I laughed at her. (laughs) Don't be so silly. She was probably absolutely correct on that one. It was. Another way I could set myself apart was with my hair. Check out this picture of me in high school. (laughs) I'm the guy in the middle. Now, I know you're thinking a few things. I'm trying to address all of them. First of all, that hairstyle was known as by some people nicknamed The Wave, or others it was later called The Bravo in honor of Johnny Bravo. If you don't know who that is, just Google it. If you're on your phone for a moment, I don't care, so you can look it up, and I'll hear these snickers throughout the rest of the sermon. Um, But believe it or not, that I was voted best hair my senior year of high school, (laughs) along with a friend of mine. There were two winners in every category. I like to think I, I probably came in first, and he was a distant second, but And also, I have to admit, yes, it's true, it's not all that different from my haircut today. I think I just have a slightly less tall version on my head right now. But the quest to define ourselves doesn't end in high school. I think it's something that continues our whole lives. We just pick other things to denote who we are and what we're about and to tell the world that. So now, for better or worse, there are other things that we look to to make sense of who we are. You know, when you're trying to get to know someone, what is one of the first questions you ask? You ask, what do you do? You know, for me, I'm a pastor. That's pretty obvious right now for anyone here because I'm preaching. And while I think that's a really good 
thing to do. I, I love being a pastor. Um, I found that it's not necessarily a helpful way to define myself. For one thing, I have my bad days all the time. I forget things, uh, people things sometimes that run the risk of hurting people if I forget about them. Uh, I, I preach sermons a lot, and for a good part of my life, I don't think I'm there right now, but I felt so much pressure to bring some kind of sermon to people, I don't know, that would change their lives every week. But I felt a lot of pressure. Um, and so from Tuesday through Saturday, I'd be working on my sermon so that on Sunday I'd have something to offer, which meant Tuesday through Saturday it was hanging over my head. as this ongoing pressure. And then Sunday I'd give the sermon. The rest of Sunday I'd feel great. Monday would be my day off. And then Tuesday it'd start all over again. I don't think feeling stressed out about something five out of seven days a week is a great example of what we've been talking about this series, which is experiencing uh, salvation here and now as a present reality, not as something to wait for or something that happens when you die. But it seems to me that the scriptures talk about salvation, and almost always it's about what you've been saved from in this life. And so I don't think that's a great example of experiencing new life or a better life now. And what does it mean if my sermon's a clunker anyway? Does that mean I'm a bad person? That doesn't seem to be a great way to live. Maybe you've noticed similar things in your life. You know, maybe at your job, it could be a lot of things. Maybe you have a, a sense of concern that your boss is upset or unpleased with you. So maybe you work extra hours and feel terrible and exhausted most of the time. And maybe it's a relationship in your life. I'm not going to be able to hit something for everyone, but maybe it's your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or parents. And if they're not happy with you or if you can't make them happy, then you lose the sense of peace you have in your life. Or maybe it's everything is working out for you in your life, and that's like the worst thing that ever happened to you because you're still miserable. And we've been talking about experiencing the here and now of salvation during this series. And along the way, I've been encouraging you to say the way to live this on an ongoing basis is to follow Jesus. Not to have like a, a moment or a decision, but to begin this interactive process of living life with an active, interactive experience of God. But one thing I want to be careful of this week is to, that I don't give you the wrong picture of what that looks like. So if you're unfamiliar with what we've been doing, we've been having this sort of back and forth type of sermon series where one week we'll hear from someone in our church about how they've experienced uh, the, the inbreaking or the salvation of new life in their lives in the here and now and the difference it's made. And then I come in and I, I try and provide context. And then we hear another person's story in the context. So this is a context week where I, don't, I want to make sure you're not getting the wrong idea of what it means to follow Jesus. And by that I mean man, it's time to go to work. Maybe you have experienced some sort of in-breaking, new experience of life. Where do you go from there? How does that experience not go away? How can we continue the experience of everyday salvation? So this week, we're going to flesh that out so that we can live in a way that we don't lose the experience of salvation that we have, and more than that, we can experience more and more of it every day as a common experience. Does that sound interesting and worthwhile? You sure? All right, cool. Let's do that. All right, because that's all I got. There's nothing else. That's, that's what we're doing. So anyway, let's read our passage today. First, a little background. 
Uh, it was written by the early church father, Paul. He writes to a group of people called the Colossians from the town of Colossae. Uh, and they're uh, an early church that he helped found. And uh, he writes them in, in the, right before what we're going to read. Um, it's clear that things aren't going well for them in certain ways. That they're getting tripped up along the way. So immediately before this part we're looking at today, Paul writes and says, look, don't get the wrong idea. Your best efforts are not going to get the job done. This is not what we're talking about. This new experience of faith, faith is salvation that you've been experiencing in everyday life. It's not about you uh, being a good enough at performing whatever your religious duties are or whatever. And so he kind of comes against that by saying, look, forget this, what he calls, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch approach to faith and life. He said that those approaches are, quote, destined to perish, unquote. And he also says they, quote, lack any value, unquote. In other words, their, their willpower combined with their passion isn't enough, and that's not the message he's trying to give them. That's not the thing that will bring transformation into their life. That's not the religious experience he even wants them to have. That's not it. So what do they do? How can salvation be a real experience every day? And this is what he writes. Since then, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever brings, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So there's this big point here he's making. This is a new experience. I'm not giving you another form of the same type of philosophy, religion, approach to life that you've known your whole life, just with a Jesus twist. He's saying this is different. And of course, you've fallen back into these things, but we're going to move on from that. And as we examine this passage, I'm hoping we'll see like four things, four brief things. Uh, the solution that Paul offers, the problem it's addressing, the method that he gives them to live and lean in that direction, and the result that we can expect and they can expect. So how can I live this experience of salvation every day? And the solution that I think Paul gives here is to put on a new self. Verse 9 and 10 says, Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now, notice here that Paul is encouraging a change in the lifestyle of his readers. He's not saying do not lie, or he is, <laughs> he is saying, he is saying do not lie, but the reason he gives is not that it's a rule or that they should obey. The reason he gives is that it's not who they are. It's not the new self. 
It's not the result of the deliverance of new life coming into them. It's not part of their true new identity. He's not saying, look, there's a rule about lying. Don't do that. He's saying, don't lie because it's not who you are. I've experienced this a little bit in my life. You know, in a former life, I did a lot of acting on the stage and I studied theater in school quite a bit. But I remember the first time I was in a play, I actually have a photo to show you of this. I don't know if you can pick me out. I'm on the bottom right. You see that guy with the, the goblet and the big feathery hat? It's a little blurry. It's a picture, <laughs> I think a picture from uh, the early 90s. So um, you see that, that cute little kid there? That's me. Um, and what I realized at that young age is that when I put on a leather jacket, when I had a cool feather hat, it was easy for me even as an incredibly insecure junior high boy who was made fun of a little bit, not invited to parties, to strut my stuff like I was the king of the world. If you can imagine that little guy doing that. I had this role, it was this play called Taming of the Shrew, it's a Shakespearean play, it was an abridged version, an edited version, if you know the play. And um, <laughs> I was the lead, I was this guy named Petruchio, and I, he was brash and bold, little insensitive, a lot of things like that, and I was in it. I think Paul here is talking about a somewhat similar process that in theological terms is often referred to as conversion or embracing an identity in Jesus that is life-changing and changes the way a person views and relates to the world. Now, when you hear that, hear that term conversion, you may think, oh, well, I don't want anything to do with that. That's for religious people, and I'm not interested. Or you might think, oh, yeah, I know all about that, but I decided to follow Jesus a long time ago, and that's old news. Well, if you're in one of those camps, I want you to just pause before you turn off your brain and your heart, because I'm, I, I think there's a different understanding of conversion, both what it is and how it operates in our life that I think could be really helpful for you. I read this article in the New York Times a few years ago. It's called, it was called Getting Religion by Mark Lilla. Mark Lilla was a professor in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. And Lilla's an interesting guy. He's an atheist from an evangelical background. So for his time as a teacher, or for his time as a teenager, he was really involved in the Christian church. But in college, he decided that it wasn't for him. And as a reporter, he goes back to, of all places, a Billy Graham crusade in Queens to cover it for his newspaper. And on the way back, he meets two gentlemen from Philadelphia, both who go to school just up the street, or went to school just up the street at the Wharton Graduate Business School. And he was shocked to learn that one of the Wharton students actually responded to Billy Graham's altar call. Now, this isn't about Billy or anything like this. This is about this professor and his experience and what he learned about himself. He said this, I found it hard to conceal my bafflement. Since Billy had not said much at all, you must be born again, that was it. I felt like a, a professoral, professor, professorial lecture welling up in my throat about the history and psychology of religion. I wanted to expose him to the pastiche of biblical text, the syncretic nature of Christian doctrine, the church's ambiguous role as incubator and stifler of human knowledge, the theological idiosyncrasy of 
American evangelicalism. I wanted to warn him against the anti-intellectualism of American religion today and the political abuses to which it is subject. I, want to, I wanted to cast doubt on the step he was about to make, to help him see that there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, perhaps even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him that his dignity depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude toward doctrine. I wanted to save him. Now, what an incredibly self-aware thing to say. In other words, he wanted to convert his new friend to skepticism. And he continues, he says this, I thought, it was, I, thought I was out of that business, but maybe not. Doubt, like faith, has to be learned. It's a skill. But the curious thing about skepticism and, is that its adherents, ancient and modern, have so often been proselytizers or evangelists. In reading them, I've often wanted to say, why do you care? Their skepticism offers no good answer to that question, and I don't have one for myself. Now, I think what Lilla is on to here is that we're all, it's a simple idea, we're all converted to something whether we want to admit it or not. We all have some way of understanding who we are and how the world works. We all have a way of defining ourselves, our place in the world, how to pursue happiness. But here's the thing. Not everything works. And that's the problem. Not everything works. Verse 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, one thing I think that's important to note here is that the object of the things that Paul encourages his readers to put to death, in general, are not, they're not bad things at all. Did you notice that? In fact, they're good things. So, for example, a lot of them focus on sexual morality, right? Sex is a gift from God. It's pleasurable. It brings unity and vulnerability and intimacy between people. The Bible has lots of really wonderful things to say about sex, including an entire book that is all erotic poetry. Money. So he talks about greed here. Money's a gift from God. It's not a bad thing. It builds hospitals, funds research, supports the work of God in the world. So what I think is happening here can be misread. Paul isn't speaking out here against sex. He's not talking bad about money. Instead, he's, he's making a completely different point. Uh, it's translated here as evil desires. That's the thing that I think Paul is trying to get people to turn away from. It's the Greek word epithumia, which means strong desire or over-desire or inordinate, over-the-top desire. So it's not that desire even is talked against by Paul here. It's over desire. The desire itself isn't evil. What makes it evil is that it's out of proportion to the object that it's directed toward. Are you catching that? And then he throws out this word idolatry. He says greed is idolatry. What idolatry is is making a good thing the thing. So I think what Paul is saying that the problem here is, is that we over-desire good things. How? 
I think when we put too much hope in them to make us happy, to give our lives meaning, to define us, when they become a source of identity for us, and when this happens, we're in essence, we're, we're just converting to the wrong thing. This is a, you, you see that? And that's a, that's a dangerous thing to do. You know, my co-winner of best hair in high school went bald in four years after high school. Maybe you find a boost in your ability to be attractive to other people. So when you're low, you are boosted by your, abil- your ability to feel desirable. But maybe after you hook up, you feel rejected and worse than you did in the beginning. Or maybe you get a lot of affirmation from advancing in your career and getting good grades, but instead of being able to enjoy your successes, you immediately feel the pressure of the next assignment or the next promotion. Or maybe you thought a baby would fix whatever it is you feel like you're missing in your life. But it hasn't worked that way. There's so many things. Whatever we convert to, we put our hope in. And it's not bad to hope in things. It's just destructive when we overhope. When we look at things that can't give us what we real, really want, but expect them to. Because when that happens, then we just think, well, we just we need to lean into that more. We need to invest more energy into that. We've got to give it more. And as we're giving it more, all of a sudden that thing that's a good thing, that's supposed to bring life and some meaning into us, starts to drive us. And now we're driven by something that can't pay off, and it's a vicious circle. So Paul says, put that approach to death. He says, it's not going to work. What are you converted to in your life? Like, what are the things that you are living for, hoping that they pay off eventually? They'll bring you some peace. And is that thing something that can do that? This is hard. We all do this. It doesn't matter what the philosophy in our head is or even what we believe in our hearts on some level, but what plays out in our lives. And as I read this passage, I think Paul is all about having something that's ultimate in our lives as opposed to something that's not quite ultimate. It's a good thing, but if we make it the thing, It's not fair to that thing, and we're going to be disappointed and hurt and wound ourselves in the process. So what does he suggest? I think Paul suggests a method, which is find something better. And we noted earlier that the whole backdrop for this section of Paul's writing is the idea that willpower is not enough to bring transformation into our lives. Willpower can sometimes change the behavior for a bit, but it doesn't change our hearts. The do not touch, do not taste, do not feel, do not whatever. So in verse 1, he says, set your hearts on things above. The way to change a misplaced over-desire of our heart is to give our hearts something even better to desire. Uh, there's an author uh, from the 20th century named Flannery O'Connor. And she's a famous Southern American writer. And she did some writing and speaking about this and writing of renouncing certain behaviors in order to submit to God. She said this, I don't assume that the renunciation goes with submission 
or even that the renunciation is good in itself. Always you renounce a lesser good for a greater. The opposite is what sin is. But that something greater that we're looking for has to be something solid, right? It, Paul, it seems, is not just encouraging his readers to whip up some random passion, but he encourages them to find that thing and then embrace it as a new foundation. So he says, set your hearts on things above, and then he says, set your minds on things above. Uh, There's a theologian not that far off the American Revolution named Jonathan Edwards, who described this as a combination of heat and light. You know, the heart and the mind. Heat being the representative of our emotions, and light being the representative of truth. Something solid. He said this about his preaching. He said, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided that they are affected with nothing but the truth, and with afflictions that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. Now, that's, we don't really talk like that so much anymore. But I think Paul here is giving us something that can be a great truth in our life, a foundation for us. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What's the big idea that Paul's getting at here? Well, it seems to me it's this idea of being raised with Christ. So we learn from this passage that Christ is at the right hand of God. Not necessarily a literal place that Jesus is occupying, like in a seat. But right hand is a way to describe the place of favor and ultimate acceptance. That's where the person you trust and love the most sits if you're a king at your right hand. And if you're at the right hand of a king, you're his favorite. And this, I think, is a picture of how Jesus saw himself, his sense of being and identity. You know, we're talking about that. It wasn't in, I don't know, maybe Jesus had great hair. I don't know. He could have been bald, too. I have no idea. But it wasn't in that. It wasn't in the crowds that came to see him preach. It wasn't in the miracles that he did or all the people who told him it was awesome. Because if it was, he would have been crushed when everybody turned their back on him. It was in this place. There's another point where Jesus is baptized, and when he comes out of the water, a voice from heaven says, this is my son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Another way for us to get a picture of what it means to be someone's right-hand person. There's a sense of identity that's rooted in acceptance, and instead of driving a person to satisfy something else, the way a lot of the things we over-desire do. Instead, it frees a person to all the possibilities that God has to offer because God's already satisfied. You're already in that place of the right hand. And I think that's why this image in this passage illustrates this so brilliantly. Our old self, that part of us that's driven by the things that cannot ultimately satisfy us is nailed to the cross with Jesus and it dies with him there. And in this passage, Paul says we've all died. That's what he means. 
Then as Christ was raised to life, so we're raised with him into a new life that is in Christ and at the right hand of God. And when we're in Christ, we're with him there. And so we can enjoy Christ's favor with God. And this becomes a new identity that's available to us. Accepted, loved, the favorite, favored. And when this happens, we can say no to things that can't really fill us in the end. Or only drive us and enslave us if we're converted to them. We can say no to our careers, our sexuality, our children, our grades, our parents. Not as bad things. We can celebrate them as good things. But no to them as the thing that defines who we are. Or drives us with the hope that we can be okay or have peace. We can say, no, you're not my life. You may be a gift. You may be an opportunity. You may be a blessing. You may be a possibility. You may even be a calling. But you do not define me. My identity is as a completely accepted, loved, and approved person in Christ. He is my life. He defines me. That's the solid thing that doesn't drive me, but sets me free. You see the difference? And then the result is that we experience transformation. And this works because, it, as far as I know, it's the one approach that's not based on anything that you do. Instead, it's based on what Jesus did. And in this passage, Paul talks about the cross and dying with Christ. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator, grace transforms Willpower enslaves. It's not bad to have willpower, but that is all you have. It only lasts for a time. And this renewal that's talked about here, this is the new life. This is what we're talking about in this series of the deliverance that comes into us and the experience of new life in Christ. That starts now. That can free us from being driven and put us in a place of peace that's motivating because of all the opportunities around us. Does that sound better? It is. And you know what? This is what I want. And I don't have it all the way. So I have it in some ways, but in a lot of ways, man, I, I'm defining myself by what I do all the time and feeling like a failure all the time. And that's part of the reason why. It's rare for me often to find myself, oh, yeah, it's not about that. To experience sort of, oh, yeah, I, I, I died to that, and now I have the opportunity to see myself and to practically experience being uh, at the right hand of God in terms of how he sees me and accepts me and the opportunities before me. So let's do something. Let's just all close our eyes for a moment. I promise I'm not going to make you do anything embarrassing. Don't worry. But it can be helpful to take a moment 
And what I want you to do is just in your mind's eye, ask yourself this question and then picture what do you turn to when you feel like a bad person? What do you do? Now, you might turn to something that's a bad thing, okay. You might turn to something that's a, a good thing, right? But you're trusting and hoping in it for too much. So you don't have to judge the thing that comes to mind as good or bad. Just what is it? I want you to picture in your mind so that the next time you're feeling bad uh, and you go to do that thing, you'll be like, oh, yeah, this is what I do. And it may be helpful to a degree, but if you're really feeling bad, I would like to suggest that when you have that moment, oh, yeah, this is the thing I do, that you ask yourself in that moment a question, what is an alternative? What's something else I could do in this moment? that could connect me with God or remind me of what he says about me or that I'm his daughter with whom he's well pleased or his son. What, it, let's take another step back. What's a time in your life where you have actually felt that from God? You've actually believed it for a moment or a season. You might even be in that season right now. Oh, God actually does love me and accept me for who I am. Think of a moment when, when that was happening in your life, when you experienced that. What were you doing? How did that happen? Could have been a worship experience, services experience. Could have been anything. You could have been surprised. Oh, my gosh, I feel God's love. So next time you're in the situation where you feel like a bad person and you're turning towards something that you always turn to to either forget about that or feel better, maybe this time try that thing that you remember actually from your life when you did feel the love of God. Whatever that second thing I asked you to think of where you felt loved and accepted, how can you do that again? Or lean into that. And instead of going to the old, somewhat faithful way of feeling better about yourself, telling yourself you're not a bad person, or just forgetting everything, try and reconnect to whatever you did that brought the love of God to you, that you experienced the love of God and his acceptance. And find a small way to connect and do that thing, to take a moment out and connect and do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for the message of identity. I feel like for many of us today, it's not going to be new, the idea that we're in you or that we're at the right hand of God with you in that place of favor and acceptance. Or even that, God, you say to us, this is my child with whom I'm well pleased. I love you. But I pray that this morning something would happen as we sing songs, something would happen during the week when we feel like a bad person that would be different and help us connect to that 
a very real way so that that salvation is present with us in the moment. And for that, we ask for your help and your grace. Amen.